Let's pray together before we look at the scriptures. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, we always want to acknowledge your presence with us whenever we're gathered together. As we worship you today, we know that you're here, so we're, we're here to be open. Whatever else is going on in our lives, we're here to be open to hear what you have to say to us, to exist in your presence, to receive your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy, uh, God, and to be sent back out into the world that we know you love and that we all have a role to play in the work you're doing. Uh, so God, we just pray that you uh, calm all the other things happening in our lives for a few minutes. Help us to pay attention to you and what you might be saying to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever in your life gone through a period of significant doubt? Have you gone in your life through a period where you had significant doubts about something that's really important to you in your life? So it could be a relationship, a career path, education, faith commitment. If you have you know that going through experiences of doubt can be extremely difficult. I've been through several periods in my life where I had lots of doubt specifically about my Christian faith. Years of doubt at certain points. And in the middle of those doubts, I had questions about whether or not God existed. I had questions about whether or not you could trust what the Bible says. I had questions about whether or not the church was worth being part of um, or paying attention to. And those are really hard periods of my life um, that caused me to have all kinds of uncertainty about lots of other things in my life. But in those seasons, I was pushed to, to learn, to ask questions, to struggle, and to keep talking to God or trying to talk to God even if God didn't seem like God was there. And I came out of the other ends of those periods of doubt with a new understanding about my faith, about my identity, about my family, about the church, and a renewed commitment to following Jesus in my life. Now, I know not everybody emerges from periods of doubt in that same way, and maybe you've gone through a period of doubt that didn't end up like that, or maybe you're in a period of doubt right now. Um, and other people around you know that, or you haven't had the, the courage to tell other people around you that you're in a season of doubt. But if you have been, you're likely asked some of the questions that we've been asking in this teaching series, which is just called the Bible. And you've wondered about the reliability of the Bible and how to read the Bible and what to do with really hard stuff that's in the Bible. So you've probably asked some of those questions in your life. But I want to start today by saying that addressing doubts and questions isn't always just a matter of getting the right information. Getting the right information is helpful, right? But it isn't the whole story. And if you have some questions about the Bible, it might be for a whole number of reasons, and how you're coming at the question really informs how you're going to get at the answer to the question. So I know some people are asking this question that we're asking today, is the Bible reliable or can I trust the Bible? Maybe because they genuinely want to know, can I trust this, uh, this scripture to teach me about who God actually is and what God wants for me in my life? Other people I know are interested in this question, is the Bible reliable? Because they're passionate about one particular topic, maybe a current issue that they're struggling with. 
and they want to know if they can trust the, what the Bible says about that one issue. And maybe they're even wondering if they can't trust the Bible on this particular issue, then maybe they can't trust the Bible at all. You understand what I'm saying? Now, there's a whole other group of people that I read in order to help prepare this, this message today who I realized were wrestling with this question, is the Bible reliable? Because they don't want the Bible to be reliable. They were writing out of a place of wanting to reject what the Bible says for various reasons. They had bad experiences with church or Christianity or, or what have you. And they wanted to be able to discard the Bible and they were looking for reasons to do that. And that's why they were interested in the question. So depending upon how you're coming in, there's a wide variety of us coming at this question in lots of different ways today, right? And it might be good to just reflect um, if you are asking this question genuinely, is the Bible reliable or can I trust the Bible? Uh, why are you asking the question? Why is that question important to you? Um, and if you haven't been asking it and it's the very first time you've ever thought of it, I hope today's sermon will give you some pathways to think about it and find some answers. I'm asking the question today because I'm the pastor in a church where a whole bunch of people have been uh, letting us know that this is a really important topic. Understanding the Bible in the 21st century and postmodern, post-Christian, post-whatever contexts is a, a question that a lot of people in our church are asking, and we want to trust the Bible, but we have significant questions about it, and we don't want to just stick our heads in the sand and pretend like those questions don't exist or grab some answer from 1955 and pretend like that's satisfying. We need to engage the conversation as it stands right now, and that's why we're addressing this question in this message today. So um, what we're going to do is look at uh, a piece of Scripture. Obviously, we can't cover the whole of it. I can't answer every question about whether the Bible is reliable. We're going to look at some Scripture, and we're going to ask a couple key questions. Like, aren't there a whole bunch of errors in the Bible that make it unreliable? Or didn't just powerful Romans put the whole books together and decide which books are in and which books are out, and therefore it's really just a whole power, political power play from the 4th century? We're going to address some of those, but you'll inevitably leave with more questions, and we want to hear about that. We're trying to do our best to engage you in all the questions, but if you have one that you don't get answered on this topic, email me, please. Find my email on the website and email me, and I'll be happy to talk to you more about it. Um, so in order to answer the question about whether or not the Bible is reliable, I think we have to start with talking about, real simply, what is the Bible and what isn't the Bible, okay? So we're going to start there. Uh, here's some ideas about what the Bible is. Uh, the Bible is, A, not a book, okay? It's not one book. It's a library of books written, 66 books, in fact, written by a whole bunch of different people over hundreds of years of time from lots of different contexts to lots of different audiences. So inevitably, it's going to be widely diverse in terms of all the different people who contributed to it as God inspired them to write down uh, pieces of the story that God wanted them to write down. The Bible is a library. The, the word, the title, the Bible, in the, in the Greek, means the books. That's what it means, very literally. So um, we don't want to mistake the Bible for, for a book. We want to make sure we treat it as a whole variety of books written by lots of different people. Another, thing, another way to describe what the Bible is in terms of its content is that the Bible is God's story about God's relationship to the world 
and the people in it. So uh, you hear this a lot if you hang around Mill City Church. We want to always say that God is the primary actor in the world and in our lives and in the, in the story that God is writing. And we're participants. We get to join in the story. But we're not the primary actor. And in faith life, it's easy to treat yourself as the primary actor and treat God as like your divine helper when you're stuck. But that's not how the Bible reads. God is the primary actor. It's God's story. And the story is meant to inform us how God relates to the world, how we can relate to God, and what our role in that world is. So the Bible is God speaking through many diverse human writers over hundreds of years to share the story of God's redeeming and restoring creation. Let me read to you from uh, the very first part of Luke. This is just one example of a good description of at least this part of the Bible, this gospel, of what the Bible is. Okay, here's what Luke says at the very beginning of his book. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Okay, sidebar comment that has no value to the sermon otherwise. See if you can work into an email this week, most excellent, put in the name, because that would be amazing. Just at the beginning, you're writing an email to your colleague, your coworker, just put most excellent George, and then see, see what happens, okay? Let me know what happens. Luke, at the beginning of his gospel, and in connection with his writing of the book of Acts, because Luke wrote both Luke and Acts, uh, is trying to tell us what Luke is trying to do in writing down the story, okay? So just look at the parts with me for a little bit, all right? First he says, I'm trying to write down an orderly account of events, right? Another way to say that is, I'm trying to capture a story, things that happened. We had some amazing things happen in the person of Jesus that helped us understand God in a new way, and we want to write that down, as other people have done, he admits. And I am going to write down an orderly account of events, a story, so that uh, you can understand it. Then he says that these events were handed down by eyewitnesses, people who actually experienced them. So not myths and legends that somebody made up at some point, but uh, physical, real people who experienced being in Jesus' presence and saw the things that happened to Jesus and through Jesus. And then Luke, who is trained as a doctor, says, I carefully investigated everything. Now, we, got, we have to be cautious not to project our standards for 21st century journalism on 1st century authors. However, Luke is signaling to us, like, I checked this out. I didn't just write it down based on what my sister told me. I checked it out. I went and talked to people. I confirmed these stories, and I wrote it down for you. And then he says he's writing to this person named Theophilus, which would be a great baby name if any of you are looking, and some of you I know are. So, Theophilus. Wouldn't it be fun to do a baby dedication for Theophilus? No, sir, here's the thing. You have got to encourage the people who are having babies to do crazy things like name their kid Theophilus. So let me try again. Wouldn't it be great if some of the people who are pregnant named their kid Theophilus so we could do a baby dedication with a kid named Theophilus? Yeah, see? All right. 
I saw some young moms nodding their heads. I think we're on our way. He says to Theophilus, now scholars don't know if Theophilus is an actual person or that he's using the name because the name means a lover of God or someone who loves God. That's what it literally means. And so he might be saying, hey, anybody who loves God, I'm writing this story down for you that I checked out from the eyewitnesses so that you, person who's already inclined to love God, will have an orderly account of the story, of the things that happened. And then finally, he has this so that comment in there that are always important in Scripture, so that you may know the truth about the things which you have been instructed. Okay, so here's one of the most important points of this sermon. You cannot try to make the Bible be responsible or reliable about things that it's not trying to be responsible or reliable about. This is real key. Okay? Luke, in a very straightforward way here, says, this is what I'm trying to do with this, with this writing. I'm trying to give you a history of the things that happened to and through Jesus from people who saw him because you love God so you can be assured that it's true and you can live your life out in this way. It's a great description uh, for us in one, one book of the Bible to show us what the Bible is, a description of the story of God. So when you ask the question, is the Bible reliable as a source of the story of God and revealing who God is in Jesus, or if you ask the question, is the Bible reliable as a source that clearly outlines God's invitation to us to have faith in Jesus and to receive the Holy Spirit and to step into it. Is it clear enough to help us understand that story? That should be the bar, okay? Uh, scholars talk about this in a couple different ways. They, they talk about the clarity of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture. The clarity of Scripture is just to say, is the story, is the book, is the writing clear enough so that you get it? Or did you need more details in order to grasp what was being said? And if the writer, like in this example, says, well, my goal is to write this story down so it's clear to you, we want to ask the question, well, is it clear enough? Do we get the story? Do we understand what happened? We can still disagree with it or say Luke's nuts or whatever, but is the writer's writing clear enough that we understand what was said? If so, they accomplished their task. Their task. Uh, and in terms of sufficiency, the scholars want to say that we're not trying to say that um, the Bible explains everything about everything. It doesn't. It's not trying to. It's trying to sufficiently provide you with what you need to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God, who God is as a gift giver to you so you can respond. That's the point. That's what it's trying to do. Is it clear enough to do that? Does it sufficiently give you enough of the story so that you feel like you get it and can decide if that's something you're going to order your life around or not? If so, then the Bible's reliable because that's what it's trying to do. The Bible is clear about God's story and is clear about our invitation, God's invitation to us to respond to that story. And therefore, in my opinion, it is reliable and it is trustworthy because it does what it's trying to do. Now, if you go in the other direction and think for a minute about what the Bible isn't, sometimes the contrast can be helpful, all right? So if the Bible is God's story, told by a diverse group of authors over hundreds of years, inspired by God to help us understand that story, 
then here are some things the Bible is not. Okay, first of all, we already talked about, the Bible is not a book, it's a library of books. It's not a magic answer book. Okay, Some, sometimes, I'm sure I've done this in my life, you treat the Bible like, I'm having a bad time, I really want to hear from God, let's see what Leviticus 16 says. And I know that some of you have even had the experience where God has helped you through that, and you've cracked the Bible open, and maybe that was really significant for you. Um, I'm not saying God can't do that in a miraculous way. I'm just telling you it's a bad practice for generally reading the Bible. If your whole practice of reading the Bible is just Tuesday, okay, Jeremiah 30, you're not going to understand the full story. It's It's not a book where you can just open it up and grab a sentence and try to make sure that it it somehow connects to your life. It's not a list of promises to claim. And I know for some of you that might be a challenging idea. But let me explain this. So let me do these two together. It's It's not a book of promises to claim, and it's not a book of commands to be followed. And here's why. If you pull the promises out, I have these books in my office. You probably have one too. God's promises for whatever, right? Anybody have a book like that? Okay, both of you admitted it. Thanks, Ramon and Trevor and me. We all have that book. Okay, and it just lifts, it like lifts them out of the scripture. God promises to provide for you. God promises to always be with you. God, you know, there are lots of them. There are lots of promises. Um, Here's the problem with the book, though. If you're going through life and you're doing great and you open the promise book and you say, God promised to provide for you, I'm provided for. Awesome. But what if you're not provided for? What if you feel like God, what if you're in that season of doubt and you're really far away from God and you don't feel like God's close to you? Then you read the the promise book and you go, well, the Bible's not reliable because it says it promises me this and I'm not experiencing it right now. Therefore, Bible's not trustworthy. Same thing with the commands. If you lift the commands out of the Bible, which there are tons of, and you just pick one out and say, well, I'm going to obey this one and anybody else who doesn't obey it isn't following God then you're, you're taking things out of context in a way that ignores the full story. And so if we're not always reading the Bible as the full story of God and, and seeing where is God acting in the story and what's my role in that and how am I supposed to respond to God's invitation, we can pick things out as magic answer book, book of promises, book of commands, and ultimately when you do that long enough, you're going you're gonna to want to say the Bible's not reliable because it isn't reliable in that form because that's not what it's trying to do. The Bible, uh, another one that's sometimes hard for us, the Bible is not a science textbook. Have you read a science textbook? I know the PhDs in here with the science. This is not a science textbook, right? It wasn't written to explain every scientific principle about the world and how the world works in every way. Gravity is not sufficiently explained in the book of Jeremiah. That wasn't Jeremiah's point. And I know that some of us come from traditions where we've been arguing about uh, whether the world is really old or will, really young. And, and then this is how this conversation goes. It goes, well, Genesis 1 says it was created in six days. And then the Christians argue about whether the day means 24 hours or really long or whatever, you know. And here's what I want to say. Important question, uh, how old the earth is. Good question. Better, better to not make Genesis 1 and 2, which was not written to explain how old the earth is, try to explain how old the earth is, okay? Genesis 1 and 2 is an amazing, amazing argument, actually, 
about how people understood God. It uses Elohim in the first chapter and then transitions to Yahweh in the second chapter because it's trying to persuade a whole group of people who already believe some form of the story that God created the earth. And the author is trying to say, yeah, but it's this God. And this is the one who loves you and wants to be in relationship with you. That's the point of Genesis 1 and 2. It's introducing an epic story it wasn't trying to say 6,000 or 4 billion or whatever. It wasn't doing that. It doesn't mean the question doesn't matter. It just means don't try to make the Bible do something the Bible's not trying to do. Super important. The Bible is not necessarily a love letter written from God to you personally. Okay? Don't hear me saying that God doesn't love you. God loves you. I'm sure God would love to write letters to you. I'm, I'm positive of that. However... The book as a whole was written for all of us for all time to help us understand God, who God is, what God's story is, and how we intersect with it. So we can't overly individualize it and assume that God is only speaking to us through Scripture. And finally, Steph said this a few weeks ago, the Bible's not just a handbook for how to live as a Christian person. Not, not um, <clears throat> in large part because you know, most of it was written to people who didn't even know what the word Christian was in the Old Testament. So, yes, are there places in Scripture that help us know how to live as Christians? Absolutely. That's not the overall point of what the Bible is trying to do. So, when we treat the Bible like one of these things that the Bible isn't, then I'm going to say you're probably going to find that it's unreliable in those ways or not trustworthy in those ways because we're trying to make it do something it's not intended to do. And it's really critical that we examine that and figure out what is the Bible's point? What is it? What is it trying to do? And can we trust that and not try to say, let's um, make it do something it isn't intended to do? Okay, so let me address in a short order a couple of important questions. The first one is, well, maybe the Bible's not reliable because powerful people decided what books were in it. And uh, if, you, if you love the Da Vinci Code, if you still have DVDs, and you're watching Dan Brown's movie, you might, you might get caught up in this conversation where it's like, well, yeah, powerful people decided what went in the Bible. It's just false. It's not a good historical representation. What actually happened was the Christian communities, the early Christian communities in the second and third centuries in particular, started using these scriptures that had been written down and testing them, the Gospels, Paul's letters, some of the other uh, pieces of the New Testament, and over time, over 200 years, they decided together which books would go in and which books would not. Which is so amazing because you might say, shouldn't we have had like a professional person sit down and figure that out? Like, seems important which ones were in and which ones were out. Did we really leave that up to these early first, second, third century communities? And, and then that's where we say, yeah, because that's what God always decides to do. I don't know why. God trusts us immensely to be able to hear the, the leadership of the Holy Spirit and understand what it is we're supposed to pay attention to. And so by the time that list is finalized in like the year 367 or so, he, it has already been determined by the churches because they all said, yep, these are the books that we think God inspired and we're supposed to use. We battled it out over Revelation because some of us didn't really like it. It's hard to read. But then at the end, they said, yep, no, we better include Revelation too. And that's how we got the 27 books. 
And so there's no truth to the, to the theory that Emperor Constantine just decided, hey, these are the books we need in there in order for it to be politically advantageous for the Roman Empire. That's not what happened. He ordered 50 books in the middle of the fourth uh, century to be created, which is a huge task. But there was no discussion at that council about which books should be in there because it had already been determined. So let me, let me move on to one more question. So aren't there just a ton of errors in the Bible? Doesn't the Bible just chuck full of mistakes? Isn't that the truth? Uh, again, the Bible's written over a really long time by a lot of people, and believe it or not, they couldn't just scan things and send them to their MacBook in that whole history. So this is what they did, in case you didn't know this. They had people called scribes whose job it was for years to sit down by candlelight and, and some kind of inkwell and copy them. Can you imagine? How long do you think it would take you to copy the Bible down by hand if you were just to start this afternoon? Any guesses? One week. Okay. It took a really long time, and they copied all these things down, and they were super careful, but you can imagine that over periods of time, they made mistakes. They copied something wrong, or they thought the person before them copied something wrong, so they tried to correct it, and what happens is we end up with all these things that are called variants, and there are thousands of them over periods of time. Now, some people who critique the, the reliability of the Bible say, look, there are all these variants, so you can't, obviously can't trust the Bible. But historically speaking, one of the things that gives us so much confidence about the Bible is because we have so many of these copies. We have 5,700 copies of the New Testament before the printing press. And no other ancient book even has half that number. There are way more copies of the New Testament than we have of anything else. And so we can take 5,700 pieces and look at them and get a pretty good idea of what the original was, even though we don't have the actual original scriptures. And so by having so many copies, it gives us a very high degree of certainty about what the original one said. And where there are disagreements, which there are still quite a few of, one scholar said it's about 6% of the New Testament and 10% of the Old Testament where most of the variations occur. And most of those variations don't change the meaning of the text. So there's only a couple of places. And usually your Bible, if you have one of those study Bibles, it will tell you, it will put things in brackets like uh, the woman caught in adultery, that story. It'll put it in brackets in your study Bible and say, scholars disagree and the earliest manuscripts don't include this. This is what I love about Christianity. One of the things I love about it is, for the most part, it's just, yeah, we're, we've got variations. People have studied it. There's some question about some parts of it. But that's not the point. It's not, it doesn't change the whole story. Therefore, we're not, we don't need to cover it up or pretend like those mistakes don't exist or pretend like, well, somehow miraculously God intended every one of those scribal errors to be there and then made them go back and all kinds of nonsense. We don't need to do that because it doesn't change what the Bible is trying to do, which is tell this epic story of the God who created us and has saved us and has restored us and is sending us out into the world to be part of what God is doing. The Bible, just real strictly historically, is as reliable a historical text as we have. Not thinking of it as a Christian, just as a historian, it's, the, it's as reliable of a text as exists. So. Are there still questions about what the original form of certain parts of the Bible are? Small percentages of the New Testament and the Old Testament? Absolutely. 
Are those questions significant enough to change the story of God and the understanding of the whole of the 66 books and its implications for us? Not a chance. So in that sense, from the big picture, in my opinion, the Bible is very reliable and very trustworthy, but it can't do gymnastics. It can't do things that you don't want it to do. And here's my biggest concern, because the church has always dealt with with controversies, always. They've always had disagreements about interpreting things, about how we should respond. I expect that's going to go on forever, right? So here's, here's my biggest concern. Please, please don't throw the Bible out because you're having trouble with one part of the Bible. All right? I've been in these massive arguments where Christians are together and voting and yelling and interpreting, you know? And it, this is what I hear him saying. Because you don't agree with me on this thing, then we can't trust anything. And I can't trust you. Please don't do that. Steph used that analogy where he said, when you, if you pull one thread out of a tapestry, the whole tapestry doesn't fall apart. That's true of Scripture too. As long as we can say the core story and the core identity of Jesus as the Son of God, the person who died and came back to life and invited us to receive forgiveness and salvation through faith and to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what God's called us in the world, that's the core story. That's what makes us, a Christian. That's what makes us Christians. If we can agree on that, then we'll have to struggle with the rest of it. That's just what it is. And maybe at times we'll say we have to agree to disagree or we even have to part ways. But just let's stop damaging the reputation of the church by the way in which we're doing that. Or pretending like the Bible's worthless because we disagree about something we're super passionate about. We can be passionate about it, but respect other people's opinions. That's what I hope for our church. Let me finish this sermon by just reading you a text. At the end of Luke, so I read you the beginning of Luke, Uh, I'll read you the end of Luke. I got to get to the right page. Now the same day, two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were walking with each other, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. This is after his resurrection. But they were kept from recognizing him, and he asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? But they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? Mike's translation, are you the only idiot who doesn't know what's happening right now? We have to explain it to you. What things, Jesus asks. About Jesus of Nazareth, they reply. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God, and all the people and the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Subtext here that maybe should be in there is women aren't trustworthy, so we don't believe them. Because in the first century, women were not even allowed to have a voice in these sorts of things. 
So they don't say that, but that's what they're thinking. We don't know if we can trust the women. And Jesus says to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while we talked, while he talked with us on the road? and opened the scriptures to us. Yeah, let the band come on up. Ashish is telling me, you've preached long enough. Just teasing. This is an amazing bookend. These people are in a serious season of doubt, are they not? They just lost their savior. They're confused. They're hearing conflicting stories. They clearly don't understand the big picture. And Jesus comes and walks among them and says, you don't understand the story of who the Messiah needed to be. You have a particular interpretation of that story, but it's not right. I've always wanted to be there when Jesus opens the scriptures and says, here you go, I'll explain it all to you. He, He generously says, here's how the big picture works. Here's how the story works, and here's how I'm the fulfillment of that story. And their response is the thing I want to land on today because all of this is just intellectual exercise. It's just fun to think about and debate until you come to the point where the story affects your heart. And they say, when when Jesus explained it to us, when we really got the story, weren't our hearts burning within us? Wasn't the, didn't you just feel the passion? come up in you when you heard him and you realized, oh my gosh, this guy died and came back to life and has has saved us. It has happened. And they can barely contain themselves from running to Jerusalem to find the rest of the crew and say, look, the women were right. For each one of us, that's the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is not that we interpret every single part exactly the right way or that we understand every point of it our whole lives. The point is to get to our heart and to convince us that God loves us, that God has done everything necessary for us to be in right relationship with God and invite us into a whole different kind of life as a result. And when we trust the Bible to do that, we have evidence in our own hearts and in the life of this community that trusting Jesus is worth it and true. Amen? Let's pray. God, you know how each one of us comes into this room today. You know where we are. And I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you will encourage us, that you will affirm our questions that you will help us to continue to search for you and to find you. God, keep us away from being caught up in controversies that take us away from our personal connection with you and instead, God, direct our paths 
individually and as a church so that your reputation might be great in Northeast Minneapolis and beyond and more people might come to know the one true God who has given his life for each of us and for this world that you love. God, encourage us and give us confidence, not because we can answer every question, God, but because we can trust you, the one who wrote the story. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me remind you of the story we're talking about today. God created the world, and it was good. God created every one of us and this whole world in God's image. And sin entered the story and disrupted what God intended for us. And we've been battling ever since then. Our own personal sins, our, our structural sins, our institutional sins, the sins of the people who came before us. And God made a way for us to be free from those mistakes and to be healed and reconnected through faith in Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit to not just wait until the end, but to be given a job and gifts and talents and given an assignment together to be part of the restoring and reconciling work of Jesus Christ in the world. And our hope is, because of our faith in Christ, that we get to spend all of eternity in God's presence. Amen?